And if you have your copy of God's Word, let me encourage you to open it to um, the book of Hebrews, chapter 8. We're going to be looking, uh, we're going to begin there and look at 8, 9, and 10 a, a little bit um, throughout the next few minutes. But as you're turning there, I want to ask you a question. How many times have you refinanced your mortgage? More than once? I, me, more than once. Some, Jim's shaking his head, never. That's probably why his house is paid for, right? I bring that up because, you know, I get commercials, I get emails, I get so many letters. In fact, some lenders think that we have a VA loan. I am not a veteran. I don't qualify for that, but somehow my mortgage is classified in some database somewhere. And I really wish I was a veteran because, man, they get some good rates. But all that to say, you know, there, there's always a, somebody saying, hey, now is the time to refinance your mortgage. Get a better rate. Take some money out. Recast your amortization so you don't pay as long or maybe you pay longer. But let's take a quick step back for a moment. Think about that word. What is a mortgage? For those of you guys who are students, you're probably thinking, why do I care what a mortgage is? But I think most of us think about a mortgage as a way to purchase a house without having to have all the money up front. And so we pay in time for this thing and pay a little bit of interest for years and years and years and years and years. Which is a good thing that mortgages are there because I don't know about you guys, but with today's prices, I know I wouldn't be able to pay for a house up front. Even, even the house we're in now. But have you ever thought about that word, mortgage? What does that word mean? Well, it has Old English and French roots, and it's derived from two Latin words. One of them is the word mort, which comes from the Latin word mortus, which means dead. Aren't you glad you came this morning? The second one, gauge, means pledge. In fact, in Old English, a gauge referred to the, the glove a knight would have when he's about to, to, to throw down. He's, he's throwing down saying, I promise if I don't do this, then you can kill me. And so in many ways, if we get to the crude conclusion of these words, someone who engages in a mortgage essentially says, I promise to pay this or I'll die. Or taken another way, I promise to pay this until death. Right? And I think that's why most mortgages are so long. So when we look at refinancing, we're essentially saying, I want an easier way out of my death pledge. I want an easier way to make this less painful so I can fulfill my obligations. Now, I know you didn't come to church today to talk about mortgages or financial matters. But I think in thinking about a contract like this, like a mortgage, it seemed like a good way for us to begin thinking about the idea of a covenant. Because we don't often use that word covenant. We have covenants in, 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 you know, as a church, we have a a church covenant together. It's a bond or it's an agreement we have as as members of Poolsville Baptist Church. You might have a covenant in, in some society you're a part of. You might have a covenant as a part of your neighborhoods, promising that you'll keep your grass only so tall and you'll make sure your shutters are painted and all that kind of stuff. 
Now, covenants and contracts are different, but uh, let me, let's, let's just differentiate these briefly. The Lexham Bible Dictionary notes it this way. They said, in terms of initiation, contracts are made by the exchange of promises, whereas covenants are sworn by solemn oaths. In application, contracts are limited by the terms of the exchange of property. This is mine, and that is yours. Whereas covenants involve the exchange of life. Sounds like a marriage agreement. I am yours, and you are mine. Which covers virtually an unlimited range of human relations and duties. In terms of motivation, contracts are based on profit and self-interest, while covenants call for self-giving loyalty and sacrificial love. Contracts are employed, I'm sorry, contracts are temporary, while covenant bonds are permanent and even intergenerational. Such distinctions do not apply, imply that covenants are necessarily opposed to contracts, since covenants call for both the promise-making and the oath-swearing. As it says in Hebrews 6, a contract is an an arrangement in human affairs that may be reinforced by swearing a covenant in order to add the more binding dimension of the divine. So over the last few weeks, as we've been looking through the book of Hebrews, we've seen that the writer of Hebrews, who's writing to this Jewish, these, these, this group of Jewish background believers, is essentially laying out an argument. He starts out with this bold claim, and he says, guys, Jesus is greater than what you're, what you're being tempted to go back to. Jesus is greater than all that. In fact, he's greater than the angels who gave the law to Moses, gave the first covenant to Moses. He's greater than Moses himself. And he is the greatest high priest. But as we're going to look at today, we're going to see that Jesus presents a greater covenant. And if you guys want to take notes, there's, there's some outline. There's an outline that you can uh, fill in some blanks if you're, uh, you know, If you'd like blanks filled in, you're welcome to do that. And students, let me encourage you guys, if you want to take some notes, show me your notes afterwards, and we'll go grab ice cream this week, and we'll talk about it. But the whole idea that he's getting to now, now that he's laid out this whole argument, he's getting to one final thing, and that is Jesus is presenting a better, a greater covenant for these people, for us. And unlike a contract where we get to make changes, one thing we have to understand is that this covenant isn't simply greater this covenant through jesus christ is perfect it is perfect you see there were a few different covenants that god initiated with the people of israel we could go back to the very first covenant with abraham and then another covenant with noah actually the other way around noah and then abraham and actually the very first one with adam and then we get to the mosaic covenant which i think in context seems like what they're getting at here and in that Mosaic covenant on, on Sinai, God gave Moses these rules and these regulations, these things that the people of Israel needed to do in order to acknowledge that they were his. In, a, in, in order to help them be the holy people that God had called them to be. But unfortunately, like an adjustable rate mortgage that keeps getting more expensive, the more people sinned, the more they sacrificed, the more they were faced with the reality of their fallenness. Imagine what it would be like every day going to a tabernacle, going to a temple, and presenting this little lamb that you'd been 
rearing for the last two or three years and saying, here you go, priest. I screwed up again. And that lamb loses its life or that bird loses its life or that bull, if you were really bad, loses its life. And every day, every week, every month, every year, having to go back and back and back. And yet even in that repetition, one of the things it speaks to is the fact that this covenant was insufficient. It brought awareness to people's sin. But because it had to be done over and over and over again with these animals losing their lives on behalf of, of our sin, sort of help people realize when is enough enough? When will this be over? And that's why God had continually had these prophets proclaiming, there will come a day, there is one. And we're going to get to that in just a moment. But Raymond Brown, one of the commentators that I've been reading um, notes that the old covenant, just like an old mortgage, was imperfect, it was powerless, and it, was, it ultimately became obsolete. And the writer of Hebrews notes that Jeremiah, hundreds of years earlier, proclaimed that there would be a better covenant, there would be a greater covenant, and that would be perfect. It would be complete, it would be something that is powerful, and something that is accessible to everyone. Look at what he says here in Hebrews 8, 7 to 13. He says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, and he's quoting from Jeremiah now, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. On the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. They will be merciful toward for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. And the writer of Hebrews concludes this section by saying, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So let's think about just briefly, how is this new covenant greater? You see, this new covenant didn't just raise the issue of our sin. It didn't just point out, hey, you have a sin problem. It addressed our sin permanently. Through Jesus Christ has said, hey, I'm going to look at your sin no more. I'm, I've covered it. I've taken care of it. The new covenant wasn't established on ritual. It wasn't this outward, outgoing, ongoing sacrificial system. It was something now internal. It was written on our hearts. This new covenant isn't restricted to a certain group of people. It isn't really just for the people of Israel. This is a new covenant that is available to everyone. Elsewhere in Scripture, we read that we must receive this by faith. And while it's universally available, everybody has access to this new covenant, it is not automatic. 
There's something we must do. We must respond to what is available there. Just like that mortgage letter, that you, you, got to, you can't get a new mortgage unless you're going to go through that rigmarole of, of calling them and getting on all their mailing lists and saying no to all those spam callers. Number fourthly, the new covenant provides full and complete pardon. Think about that. God says, I will remember their sin no more. Oh, what a joy that is to know that even those times when, when we incidentally, when we accidentally, when we say that thing, when we screw up, because God has already taken care of it through Jesus Christ. He does not hold that against us anymore. And finally, this new covenant is, in Brown's words, assured. Think about this. Look at how many times in Jeremiah the prophet uses the words, I will. I will make a new covenant. This is God speaking. I will make a new covenant. I will put my laws in their minds and hearts. I will be their God. I will be merciful. I will remember their sins no more. The old covenant was instituted by God, but it required the people to constantly do certain things to keep that covenant. And unfortunately, as we are prone to do, the people of Israel wandered and their religious activities became empty rituals but this new covenant is way better because this new covenant is not dependent upon us this new covenant is dependent upon god and what he is doing in us and through us as he transforms us and essentially the writer of hebrews is communicating to us that the covenant that jeremiah prophesied about is here in jesus and so he really lays out that argument in hebrews chapter 8 and Warren Wearsby summarizes this, this whole section that we're looking at that by, by saying Jesus ministers on the basis of a better covenant in chapter 8, in a better sanctuary in chapter 9, as Melody read a few minutes ago, and because of a better sacrifice in chapter 10. And rather than taking time to dive into the weeds of this argument on the sanctuary and the sacrifice... Because in some ways we've already talked about this. If some of this feels a bit repetitive, it is because the writer of Hebrews is constantly cycling through and helping them understand here's all the ways that Jesus is better. And there are some repetitions. But instead of getting into the weeds of that, I want to take the remainder of our time to really consider what does the greater covenant mean to us? What does the greater covenant mean to you and me? And really, the writer of Hebrews lays that out in, in Hebrews 10, 19 through 39. And I think he gives us some very good material for us to think through. And he begins by summarizing what he has said up to this point. He says in, in Hebrews 10, 19 to 21, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, essentially there is that better, that perfect sacrifice by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, there we have that better sanctuary. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, and he is there, our perfect mediator between us and God. And as always, you know, we have this therefore. It not only uh, should cause us to remember what has already been spoken, but then to make an adjustment in our minds to think, well, what is next? What do I have to do in light of this? 
And here it kind of points to a change that the rest of the book, the rest of the book of Hebrews, is getting to something new, something different. If you remember when we were, when we were doing all the book overviews, we, we mentioned that many of the New Testament books are divided into two sections. The first part of it really deals with indicatives, and those indicatives tell us things that are true about us, true about our faith. They indicate realities that we must know. But then so often the writers will shift to imperatives and basically saying, since this, then this. Since we have this truth, now we have to act in this way. They, the imperatives become the so what, the actions that we should take in light of those truths. And so these verses in Hebrews 10 seem to mark that shift from orthodoxy, what we believe, to orthopraxy, how we live. And so this greater covenant impacts our acts. A-C-T-S. And these are going to be, if you look at your notes, this is hopefully a way that we can remember this, what the new covenant allows us to do. And the, the first one is this letter A, to approach God full of faith. Look at what it says in Hebrews 10.22. It says, let us draw near with a true heart full of assurance of faith, a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Thinking back to the idea of that old contract or old mortgage, in order to get a new mortgage, we have to qualify for it. In order to get a new contract, we have to qualify. We have to have enough income. You have to have enough insurance. You have to have all of these things intact in order to get something new. And there's a chance that if any of that has changed, we won't qualify for that new mortgage or that new contract. But here, one of the things we see with this greater covenant that Jesus brings, here's the good news. We are already qualified. And here's the caveat. It's not because of us. I, I, don't, I certainly don't qualify for this new covenant. It is all because of what Jesus Christ has done. We have no reason to fear rejection from God if we have received Jesus and his substitutionary sacrifice on our behalf. And let me just encourage you, if you're unfamiliar with the essence of the old covenant and the good news of the new covenant, let me just summarize it this way. You see, it all started with God. He created everything. He created us to be in perfect fellowship with Him. But sin entered into that equation as those first humans chose to rebel against God's goodness. And sadly, he stained the, they stained the rest of us by that. Our very nature is now stained with that first sin. But here's the thing. Sometimes we want to give Adam and Eve a hard time and say, oh, it was all their fault. If it was someone else, maybe we'd be okay. But really? I mean, think about it. When was the last time you sinned? Maybe this morning. We want to place all the blame on them. And yeah, we are stained with sin by our nature. But we have to admit, daily, there are those thoughts that go through our minds. There's those words that come out of our mouths. There's those actions we take, those things we do, those, the way that we relate with people. We have to realize we are so fallen, so much fallen short of what God intends for us. We willfully and incidentally sin daily. 
And as we mentioned, the old covenant, it it brought in rituals. It brought in religious activities and sacrifices to remind people of their sin. And yet, by virtue of the fact that they would be coming back day after day after day, they would have known that these sacrifices were insufficient to permanently deal with their sin. So God, through the prophets, frequently spoke of a day when Messiah or the Anointed One would come and atone for sin for all time. And that's where Jesus comes into the picture. Because Jesus, he was born miraculously, as we're going to learn in in just a couple months as we celebrate Christmas. He came into this world not like you and I did. His birth was miraculous and different. Fully God and fully human. And as that human, he lived perfectly, sinlessly, able to perfectly fulfill all the requirements of that old covenant. And then he offered his life as the perfect sacrifice. And in that offering gave us this new covenant. You see, he took in his body the punishment for all our sins. He paid the debt that you and I owe. Hebrews ten fourteen says, For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Think about that. Think about what those words say. For by a single offering in this one moment, there was a moment in time when Jesus was alive on the cross and then he was dead. He was placed in a tomb and our sins were placed on him. In that single offering for all time, he sanctified, he perfected all of us who are now being sanctified, going through that process of holiness, representing. Remember a couple of weeks ago when, when Mia wore my coat, right? M- Mia put on my righteousness, if you will, right? And so in, in much that same way, in a single sacrifice, he has perfected. He has made us perfect. Now we get to be sanctified growing into that. He he has done it. And so now our job is to respond, to approach God, humbly admitting the presence of sin in our lives and gratefully receiving Jesus' sacrifice as a sufficient payment for our sins. We then get to live that out in our lives, allowing the covenant that is then written on our hearts to permeate us. I mean, think about how often do we expect other people to live up to certain expectations? We judge people on their actions, but we judge ourselves by our intentions, right? Do you ever do that? Cursing at somebody because they cut you off on the road and then cutting someone else off and feeling like you're justified in doing it. Jesus has paved the way for us to have access to God. So we can boldly approach him. But not only should we approach Jesus because of what he has done, we should, letter C, cling to our confession. Cling to our confession. Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Remember, the covenant is predicated on what God did, what Jesus did, and not on our faithfulness or unfaithfulness. When we get mired in thoughts of, it, of inadequacy or thoughts of self-sufficiency, we think, yeah, God, you should be glad that I'm a part of your kingdom. Or, or we get that other side, of, oh, man, I am totally not the Christian I should be. We have to recognize that we have to come back to and cling to our confession. It's not up to me. 
It's not up to you. It is up to him. Jesus Christ has paid the way for us to be in a relationship with him. It's not what we have done or what we are or are not doing. Hold on to that. And let me encourage you, if you've not yet received that salvation, what Jesus Christ has done, let today be the day of your salvation. Let today be the day that you begin to hold fast to that confession. Now, I don't know about you, but if, you, if, if some of these words are reminding you of something that we've already talked about before, it is true. Here, the writer of Hebrews has gone back. If we look in Hebrews chapter 4, these, this isn't up here, but in Hebrews chapter 4, he told us to, to draw near or to approach. And he told us to hold fast or cling. But I don't know about if it's true with you guys like it is for me. Sometimes I've got to hear something repeated because it goes in one ear and out the other. It leaks. Remember, these first century Jewish background believers were being pressured to turn away. So he was reminding them, hold fast, approach God. It's not through the blood of animals. It's through the blood of the Son of God. So as we approach God because of the confession to which we... Because, so as we approach God because of the confession to which we cling, the next part of our actions means that we should think about one another. T, think about one another. Hebrews 10, 24 to 35 really talk about that. But let's look at 24 and 25. It says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of son, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is where we have to fight against the rugged individualism of our society. We are saved. When you become a follower of Christ, you are saved into a community of faith. You are saved into a body of believers. You are saved into a family. And we are part of one another. And because of that, we get to think about one another. We get to think about each other. We get to think about how to encourage and challenge one another. I don't know if it's like this for you, but sometimes I can get so caught up in my own life, so caught up in my own worries, in my own stresses that I fail to think about that person next door. I fail to think about the challenges that you might be facing. This pandemic has only made that worse. You know, the governing officials told us a while ago, you can't see each other, stay home. And then once we were able to be at home, we had to be masked and I think the enemy has used this pandemic to separate us, to pull us apart, to pick us off. And as we are a bit detached because of physical distancing, we have to work that much harder to think about how we can stir one another up toward love and good works. Especially since we don't see each other often. And that's why I think assembling, that's what makes the church. If you remember a long time ago, we talked about this, that church, the Greek word ekklesia means gathering. It's an assembly. That's why being together is so crucial to what it means to be a church. Over the last couple of years, I've, I've tried to get in, into the habit of praying through our church directory frequently. And I, I figured out that if I pray for two to three, four families a day, I can get through our whole directory in about three weeks. And so daily I would pray, pray for this, pray for that. And, and, and sometimes, um, I don't know, I was convicted by it a week or so ago. I got to think, well, what does it matter if I, if I pray? I know it's making a difference, but 
what kind of difference would I make if I could actually ask people? So while I was out of town a week or so ago, I started texting folks. And some of you guys got those texts and all of you who got them replied and I'm grateful for that. And the text basically said something like, hey, I'm praying for you today. How can I pray specifically for you? And I've been so encouraged by the responses. And, and I, and I got to tell you, it, I tell you that not so you'll think, oh, man, Pastor Joel, he's this amazing pastor. He's not. It's a way for me to fight against that individualism, fight against that personalized faith to sit down and just do my devotions all by myself. And it's in some ways, hopefully, a way that we can stir up one another. Maybe, you know, when I understand what's going on in your life and how I can pray for you in that way, it means there's a way that I can come back to that and say, hey, how's that going? How's your father's illness? How is that job? How are your kids doing at school? We must think about one another. And I think one of the best ways to do that is to make sure that we... Don't forsake those times to gather, to talk to one another, to pray for one another. And I think part of the reason the writer of Hebrews urges us to think about one another is also that propensity that we have to fall into sin. And those next several verses, let me encourage you to go home and and read the rest of chapter 10. But those next several verses in 26 to 35 help us to think about how to live holy lives. But there's one final part of our acts ACTS that must come into play. And that is that we should stick it out by faith. Stick it out by faith. Hebrews 10, 36 to 39 says, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For, and he's quoting from the Old Testament, Yet a little while the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. You see, we have received a promise. Sorry, we've never received the promise that this journey will be easy. In fact, one of the things that the middle schoolers are going to start looking at is various hard questions that we have to face in our faith. And one of those is suffering. Why does God allow suffering? We have to understand that there is a reward at the end. So stick it out. Stay true to the faith. Stick it out to the very end. Oh, you know, I think about what a joy it'll be. After all the trials and tribulations, all the challenges that God has allowed us to encounter, when we stick it out by faith and come to the end, when we see our Savior face to face and He says, well done, good and faithful servant. When life is going great, stick it out. In fact, so often those great times when when all the money is there, when the family relationships are good, when the job is great, we think, oh, I don't need God. But stick it out by faith. When life is full of challenges, stick it out by faith. When the finances are failing, stick it out by faith and remain consistent with biblical financial values. When your loved ones fall away, Stick it out by faith and keep praying for them. Keep stirring. When your health is frail, stick it out by faith. Reminded that God's power is made perfect in our weakness, as 2 Corinthians tells us. 
I want to just encourage each of us. We are not alone in this journey. Because of the new covenant, this greater covenant that Jesus presents, we get to approach God full of faith. Therefore, we also can cling to our confession and then think about one another, stirring up one another into love and good works. And then ultimately sticking it out by faith to the very end, the joyous, bitter end. And next week, we're going to begin thinking about and looking at what does it mean to truly live by faith. Let's pray together. God, I do thank you and praise you for your goodness and your grace and your love. I thank you for this new covenant that you've given us. This way of approaching you because of what Jesus Christ has done, not because of what we've done or what we deserve. So Lord, help us to boldly come before you. Give us the strength and conviction to cling to that confession of what Jesus Christ has done. Give us minds to be thoughtful, considering, thinking about one another. Recognizing that we're not in this alone. To continue to press on and run this race to the very end. We know that we can't do this alone. In our own strength, we are insufficient. And yet by your grace, by your spirit, you have allowed us to be a part of a body of faith. Help us to not take that for granted. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.